You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Marty Alani, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. The month of June has been marked by protests and rallies across the country. Americans are calling for racial justice, clearly voicing that Black Lives Matter. And many scientists and scholars in academia are learning about how they can help dismantle systemic racism in their fields. A multi-identity, intersectional coalition of STEM professionals and academics has started a movement called Hashtag ShutdownSTEM. To learn more about this movement, Candice Limper spoke with graduate student Jeff P. We'll hear their conversation at the beginning of the show. The first day of summer was on Saturday, June 20th, and in Ithaca, we have been experiencing some very hot days, concluding with thunderstorms and buckets of rain. Do you ever wonder how delicate creatures like butterflies and birds protect themselves from hard rains during thunderstorms? To answer that intriguing question, Scarlett Lee speaks with Dr. Sunny Zhang, a professor in the Department of Biological and Environmental Engineering at Cornell. We'll hear their discussion later in the show. And to close out, we'll hear this week's science news. On Wednesday, June 10th, students, scientists, academic researchers, professional societies, and more chose to shut down for a day and make a commitment towards education, action, and healing. To learn more about the movement hashtag ShutdownSTEM, Candice Limper spoke with graduate student Jeff P. Hi everybody, my name is Candice Limper, and you're about to hear an interview I did with Jeff P., who is a PhD student at Cornell University in the Biomedical and Biological Sciences PhD program in the College of Veterinary Medicine. Today we are going to discuss Jeff's reaction to shutdown STEM. Participating in the shutdown um, for a couple of different reasons, but I think that really the main one is that it is really important to recognize that for me, it's evident that racism is widespread across society, especially in academia. And that's, that factor still exists. Mm-hmm. I know that a lot of my black peers on campus have been laboring for the past weeks in terms of like the advocacy and activism. And they have mentioned being obviously emotionally drained, but also frustrated that they're devoting this time away from research. And I think so as a person, as someone who's not a person of color, I think it's really good to show solidarity, not only to pause research in support, but also during this time to better myself in this area. So that's including the idea of educating myself on how systemic racism looks in academia, uh, what kind of changes are necessary going forward as we advocate for changes on campus, and then also at the same time, finding opportunities to amplify Black voices, especially those in STEM. So I thought those were kind of how I have gone about it. 
Um, what's really been encouraging, at least from my personal perspective, is that my departments and colleges have been supportive of it. So like, for example, for me, my PI uh, let us know yesterday about it and recognize that we're not going to plan anything today. Like we usually have our lab meetings on Wednesdays, but we canceled that. Mm-hmm. And then our, my individual meetings with postdocs and things like that, everybody has been very on board with it. And so that's been really encouraging, especially because my research group also does have um, individuals of color who would really appreciate that space. And they've brought up that that is something that they really do like as part of this whole process. So how are you amplifying Black voices? You said, I think that was something that you're doing. Yeah, so a lot of what I'm attempting to do today has been trying to identify really important points that are brought online. So through social media and then using my own channels to let others be aware of those perspectives. Um, I think that's really important because for me, I don't have these experiences that people are going through. And not only at this moment, but throughout their time, right? I think the black and the ivory hashtag has been really good to amplify that. And I've been, I myself have been digging through it today as well as for the past couple of days, just to really get more insight into how problematic it really is being a person of color in academia, right? And how some of the the things, whether it's very transparent and direct or very non-direct and microaggressive, these interactions can be. Um, and so that has been really insightful in providing other, the, using my own platform to let others know about those experiences as well. Uh, today has also been a lot of learning. Um, I've been reading throughout the day uh, a couple of different books about the structures of race in science in particular. I think it's been really insightful to understand the history of race and how it tangles with science. I think right now there's been a lot of talk about how science is meant to be apolitical, but in reality, I think a lot of the the original structures of integrating race and science was purely political. And I think that being more aware of that structure is really helpful for just kind of the framework and mindset that I have going forward. Do you think what you're doing is going to kind of diffuse biases and racism in STEM? I, I mean, the hope is that it does. That all the stuff that I did today is mm-hmm. very much the start, right? Like mm-hmm. inherently, a lot of it is what I can do at minimum for myself and then for whoever my platform reaches. Yeah. But in reality, this is an ongoing thing that needs to happen. I think when the question, the next question kind of drives into that is what it can me or other groups do. So as you know, as part of the GSS, we've been kind of working and thinking about how what the next steps are. Um, and as a group that really wants to support our community, many of which are people of color, um, we've been thinking about how to incorporate ways to teach anti-racist um, concepts and also to provide a safe and inclusive space for those individuals. Mm-hmm. So part of that, for example, this is finding opportunities for anti-bias, but also intergroup dialogue training. That's something that I think the, the college and the department is should really drive towards. And that's what we'll keep fighting for um, during this time. I I think in general, I've definitely seen a large number of like collectivism on campus. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of different people in each department rallying your own to come together and talk about it and uh, rally behind it. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think there's a lot to do, 
right? Because there's been a lot of thinking, a lot of saying, but once we get more actually things planted and things in action, mm-hmm. then I'd be a little bit more comfortable. For those just tuning in, this is an interview with Jeff P., a PhD student in the Biomedical and Biological Sciences PhD program, and we are discussing how he's spending his time during the shutdown STEM. What does a long overhaul of STEM look like to you? I think that there's two sides. One is the enforcement process. It's like making sure that people who are bad apples like are called out for it. Mm -hmm. And then the other half is the more rehabilitative part, which is, hey, like we want to do these trainings and do these workshops so that more people are cognizant and aware of these biases or these other things, right? Because I think, again, it's like racism doesn't look, it's not always so blatant. It's like, like these tweets and these comments are very obvious. Like, okay, that's what it is. But I think sometimes people do it inadvertently because they don't understand the biases they have based on their own life. And I think it's just being aware and careful about what and what you say and how you behave in front of other groups of people that might find certain things like very challenging or like troubling. So just, yeah, it's two parts, but I don't, I mean, again, that's not going to capture everything either. (laughs) It's hard. It's so hard. It's so draining. It's also really challenging for me uh, individually because I'm also like, it's an interesting trying to relay this information to my own community groups as being like an Asian American, which is in a very precarious situation, right? In all this. Mm -hmm. Um, And I vocalize that a lot online too, you know, the idea of that model minority, but also at the same time there is exist within other minority groups, anti-black sentiment. How does that look and how do you connect that as a, as an Asian supporting black lives? What does that look like? I think what's most important is like, even if there's actionable, if there's not actionable change now, there should, but it might not happen. Is that at least it brings up the discussion to the norm. Just like how I was saying that earlier, Black Lives Matter a couple years ago was very, like, I think it was a niche, but it was like, it was kind of very hyper progressive, mm-hmm. whereas now it's become very central. And I think like the same thing with, in general with politics, things coming in like universal basic income, you know, universal healthcare, those things like five, 10 years ago would never be in the conversation, but then now they are because mm-hmm. that's what the society wants to talk about. And just bringing it up and having that conversation makes people think more about it. They don't have to necessarily agree, but they can at least be aware of it. And I think from my own personal training is that you're never, when you're in a conversation or discussion, you're never meant to convince the other person, right? It's never about finding agreement, but it's about consensus, right? Like, you know, my perspective, I know your perspective, we can still disagree at the end of the day, but at least we're aware that your opinion exists. I think the issue that comes nowadays is a lot of people are very much enamored with their own circles, very afraid of hearing the other perspective, and then making assumptions about the other group, right? And I think that happens on both sides. And I think it's because we are in a very polarized world. And I think that in general, being more understanding of what the other person is processing, even if you disagree with it, is important in making inroads of like, okay, how do I adjust my discussions or my arguments or conversations to make them understand, right? I think as long as someone is open-minded, mm-hmm. I think that's a really, at least a good start for channeling difficult discussions, but ones that like maybe open their eyes to things. It's it, it, like, but for me, I also have, to have that as me also being willing to help them, which I'm also 
trying to do more. You just heard an interview with Jeff P., a PhD student in the Biomedical and Biological Sciences PhD program in the College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University. And our discussion was revolving around the shutdown STEM. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you want to let us know about your science news? Tweet us at FLX Science Radio or send us an email at locallysourcedscience at gmail.com. You can check out our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Now, here is Dr. Scarlett Lee's interview with Dr. Sunny Zhang. He studies how butterflies, plants, and birds are protected against the physical forces of raindrops. Have you ever walked in a rainfall and felt the rain pelting your skin to the point that you thought, ouch, this really hurts? Now imagine that you were a butterfly flying through the air. Imagine how much the rain might potentially hurt you then if you were much tinier. So how do butterflies, plants, and birds survive those harsh raindrops? That's the question that Dr. Sunny Jung asks in his recent paper, How a Raindrop Gets Shattered on Biological Surfaces. I'm Dr. Scarlett Lee. Let's hear more about how his group answered this question. Hi, I'm Sunny Jung. I'm a professor in the Biological and Environmental Engineering at Cornell, uh, my research interest is uh, very broad, like a mechanics problem in biological systems. So previously, we work on the how animals drink water, or how animals dive into water, or how animals jump out of the water, things like that. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Zhang. And we're really excited to talk about your new paper, which was published June 8th in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences and is entitled, How a Raindrop Gets Shattered on Biological Surfaces. So this is a a really fascinating paper. Uh, Can you explain to us a little bit what inspired your uh, group to pursue this research? Sure, yes. So this research shows uh, how a raindrop impacts and spread on the biological surface. So in nature, raindrops are falling at very high speed, up to 10 meters per second. So for small insects or the plant leaves, such a high-speed raindrops are very dangerous. For example, like a 300 milligram uh, butterflies are hit by the 30 milligram raindrops. This is similar situation. The bowling balls are falling at you. So you can imagine how dangerous the, the situation is. So our study shows the um, these kind of small insects or the plant leaves have a very special surface. It's called the superhydrophobic surface. This superhydrophobic surface will um, act in a way that the falling raindrop breaks into the smaller pieces. So we call it the armored kind of the, the surface to break the raindrop. Great, thank you. And so. You talked a little bit about plants. So your study, I think, looked at plants, insects, and birds. Is that correct? Yes, we look at the uh, we tested with the uh, bird feather and also insect wings. 
we tested the moth and butterfly and dragonfly insect wings and also we tested with the plant leaves. And how did you go about selecting which birds or insects or plants you were going to include in this study? Oh, so uh, we just randomly select those samples, uh, whatever we can access to it. So for the insect samples, we can get from the insect museum at Cornell. So we got a lot of the insect samples. For the bird samples, we uh, studied how gannet uh, plunge dive into water previously. So we have a dead gannet in the lab. So we easily get the feather of the gannet bird easily. Yeah. Yeah, that's neat. So you did a little bit of work with the insect collection at Cornell too, right, then, to obtain? Yes. yes. Great. Mm -hmm. So how did you perform these experiments? I mean, they sound complicated, so you wanted to generate this high volume of force. So how did you go about doing that in an experimental fashion? So experiments are very simple. We release the drop uh, very high up there and then we impact on the sample we prepare the bottom. Uh, previously, people studied like how drops impact on the uh, superhydrophobic surface, but they study only the very relatively low speed, maybe one or two meters per second. But as we know, the raindrops are falling up to 10 meters per second. So we uh, put this uh, rain releaser or the drop releasing the device very close to the ceiling in the lab. And we drop uh, this raindrop onto the sample very close to the bottom in the lab. So we can achieve about like a seven meter per second. Well, it's, uh, I mean, although it sounds simple to you, it doesn't sound super simple to me, um, is it? Very interesting that you were able to recreate uh, the speed of real rain. So were, what were the results? Were they different amongst plants, uh, insects, and birds? Or did, were, they, were there similar structures? Yes, we find a very similar uh, impact drop uh, dynamics. Um, or maybe I can say. <laughs> so, so we observe very similar phenomena of the drop spreading on the biological surface, regardless of the, the entity of biological samples. So what we find out the as the drop spreads on the biological superhydrophobic surface, we can see like a V-shaped uh, water ripples are formed on the, in the superhydrophobic surface. And then these ripples are interact with each other. And then what we find out, they nucleate the hole as the drop spread. And once they nucleate hole in the drop, then it will pop into the smaller pieces. So I think the movie might explain way better than <laughs> what I can explain by word. But you can see in the video, um, in the paper or in our website, and then you can see more clearly what, what I meant, the ripples and also whole formation. Great. And how can our viewers find your website? You can type the Sunny Jung at Cornell, then you can find our website and you can link, you can see the link to the, the paper. And then in the paper, there are a lot of the videos we uploaded. Is it difficult to obtain these videos? Do you have to shoot them in slow speed to really capture what's going on? Oh, yes. So we use a high-speed camera. Sorry, I forgot to mention the detail about experiment setup. So we put the, we use a high-speed camera. We use a multiple high-speed cameras. So we capture the video about like a 10,000 frame per second, which means the 10,000 images per second. 
So it's a very, very high speed uh, recording. And then we, from this uh, high speed recording, we can see how drops are spread and shattered into the smaller pieces. As a reminder, today we're talking with Dr. Sunny Jung about his June 8th paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences entitled, How a Raindrop Gets Shattered on Biological Surfaces. That's a very neat technique as well. So it seems like this uh, super hydrophobic structures, like you were saying, are kind of ubiquitous in nature. Are these only found on small animals or do you think that these are, are these found on any other bigger animals as well? So super hydrophobic surface is very common in the small insect and plant. Uh, I'm sure uh, big animals might have this kind of the, uh, surface, but I don't know examples of that. Right. But the, this super hydrophobic surface is very common. So super hydrophobic surface means uh, the surface repels the water away and sometimes they can clean their surface by itself. So you're saying that could be how birds or insects are able to keep flying when they're, like you said, are essentially balling uh, big bowling balls of water falling on them. Yes, yes, exactly. So the, um, if you have a big bowling balls hitting on you, uh, if you don't have a, let's say, if you don't have an armor on your skin, then you will get all the damage. But what we find out in this study, superhydrophobic surface act as an armor to break these bowling balls apart. But for them, it's a raindrop for sure. <laughs> so for this insect, they break this uh, impacting raindrop into smaller pieces and they can reduce the, uh, the force, impact force. And also they can reduce the heat transfer to the cold raindrop. So especially for small insects, they need to maintain the temperature of their flight muscles to be ready to escape from predator. So, uh, so these insects need to maintain the, the, some temperature inside the flight muscles. So losing the lot of heat to the cold rain can be dangerous to survive in the wild. And also for the plant leaf, if they experience a less impact force, then they can stay on the tree or the plant. Otherwise, this leaf might fall from the tree and then it can be dangerous to, tree, to the tree or the plant. Yeah. yeah, that definitely seems advantageous to all of the different organisms you studied. So this is obviously, as you said, ubiquitous in nature. Is it found? Have humans also used a similar technique or created a similar super hydrophobic structure? to create man-made objects that similarly resist water? Yes. So there are a couple of the, couple of the commercial products out there. So one of the famous one is called the Never Wet. So this super hydrophobic coating has been used in, the, in many engineering systems. So uh, even though our study um, focus on the biological benefits based on the drop dynamics observed at the high speed impacting drops, our findings can be translated into practical advantages of such high super hydrophobic engineering surfaces against the high speed impacting drops. Um, maybe I can add to that. A um, lot of people use this uh, super hydrophobic coating on the um, uh, the outdoor, the clothing, 
So if you walk or if you hike in the forest, you don't want to get wet. So this kind of the coating has been used a lot in, uh, in the clothing and also um, the building exterior painting too. So if you have a superhydrophobic coating on the building, then you can limit the erosion or any decay on the building exterior. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Has this been used on any medical devices? Because I can imagine that might be a similar area where you wouldn't want um, a medical device in a human to erode as it gets wet. So yeah, I'm not expert on that, but I knew there are a lot of uh, applications uh, in biomedical applications uh, use these superhydrophobic surface. And I heard that the, one of the property of superhydrophobic surface is to avoid the biofouling or bacteria uh, do not grow on the surface very well. So a lot of biomedical uh, devices use these superhydrophobic surfaces, but I don't know exactly. So these, these superhydrophobic uh, surfaces are not only good at repelling water, but they also prevent bacterial growth too? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that is uh, another reason why these small insects or plants use this uh, superhydrophobic surface because uh, in nature, if they have a lot of water sticking on the body, then bacteria and other substance can grow inside this drop. So then they can have a dirty the wings or they can have a dirty the leaf surface. So to avoid this kind of bacteria growing, on their body, they have this kind of superhydrophobic surface. Well, thank you so much for telling me about this work. And now we are all wondering what's uh, next for your research group. What are what other problems and biological mechanisms are you interested in investigating? So yeah, we are working on the various the uh, mechanics problems or fluid mechanics problems in biological systems. So. We don't really stick to this type of the problem. So in future, what we are trying to understand is also the how spores or plant spores can be dispersed by the raindrop event. And also we study like, uh, um, especially it might be very relevant to these days. We also understand like uh, how the uh, aerosol particles can be transmitted in the air by coughing and we try to design the smart mask structure to avoid the COVID-19 virus spread. Yeah, that's very relevant research currently. So I'm sure that all of our listeners are interested to see what the results are to that study. Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks. So, yeah, I guess we'll have to stay tuned. So thank you so much, Dr. Sunny Jung, for joining us. And just in case you missed it, we were talking about his June 8th paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, How Raindrop Gets Shattered on Biological Surfaces. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thanks. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science, and here is this week's science news. A new technology being pioneered by scientists in the Cornell Department of Biology and Environmental Engineering in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences uses food or plant material to create an environmentally friendly new kind of polymer. 
Dr. Dan Luo's research team has discovered that DNA extracted from biomass can be cross-linked together to create a hydrogel that can be used to produce a range of plastic-like materials and glue. To create the hydrogel, DNA is first extracted from an organic source such as apple pomace, algae, or bacteria. The DNA is then dissolved in water and mixed with a base and polyethylene glycol diacrylate, which cross-links with the DNA, to produce a gel. The gel can then be dehydrated to create different products. The process can be scaled up for commercial use. The gel can also be combined with other molecules for different applications. Dong Wang, a researcher in Luo's lab and the lead author of the study, indicates that one potential challenge is to obtain large enough amounts of biomass for production of the gel. The research study, titled Transformation of Biomass DNA into Biodegradable Materials from Gels to Plastics for Reducing Petrochemical Consumption, was published May 11th in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. To read more, visit news.cornell.edu. And that was your science news for the week. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. I'm Marty Alani, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Esther Rakusin produced today's show and the science news. Candice Limper produced the interview of graduate student Jeff P. about hashtag ShutdownSTEM. Dr. Scarlett Lee produced the interview of Dr. Sunny Zhang. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to tweet us at FLX Science Radio. Tune in for our next show on Tuesday, July 7th. Science out.